Welcome back to the next episode of our Research Talk podcast. My name is Helen Clare from JISC and I'm your host. Our guest today is Professor Jeremy Frey, who's here to talk about digital research infrastructure. Jeremy is Professor of Physical Chemistry at the University of Southampton and a Turing Fellow. His experimental research probes molecular organization in environments from single molecules in molecule beads to liquid interfaces using laser spectroscopy across the whole spectrum. In parallel, he investigates how e-science infrastructure supports scientific research with an emphasis on the way digital infrastructure can enhance the intelligent creation, dissemination and analysis of scientific data. Welcome, Jeremy. Hello, thank you. Perhaps we can start with you telling us a little bit more about yourself and your background and what drives you to get up in the morning. Thank you. So I am really a chemist. That's my background. Um, I did my undergraduate and turned uh, DPhil in Oxford in physical chemistry and then went on to the States to work on molecular beans with Professor Yuan Li. I was very fortunate to work with him a few years before he got the Nobel Prize. So that was a very exciting time. And then I came back to Southampton and started my work, always combined uh, experiment and theory. So always found that driving experiments would drive theory, and you need theory and modeling and computation to understand the results of experiments. And I was then looking at some fundamental stuff about reactions, but also applied to atmospheric chemistry and setting up a group there. Relatively complicated laser equipment um, and finding the money for that. But as that developed, it became more and more important to make sure that the laboratories really recorded sufficient amount of information about your experiments, that you could in parallel have uh, the projects running to understand the experiments. So theory, computation and experiments were all moving forward together. So we had a good time doing that, and we built up quite intelligent and smart laboratories, or at least we thought so at the time, compared to what we do now, maybe a bit different. But then it became more and more apparent that we really needed to do a much better job in recording what we were doing in the laboratory. And the opportunities came along in the sort of early 2000s when the UK started what was called the science program. Other countries called it cyber science. It really was to distinguish it from purely doing computational work. Big computers were doing a lot of really good work in computational chemistry. We used some of that to do, as I said, to support some of the experiments. But what was really interesting here was the whole ecosystem. You're actually looking at the way the computers would help you do the experiments, help you do the analysis, help you disseminate the information. This is the beginning of the rise of the web, of Google and everything there. And that struck me as really, really important because that was going to be a game changer in the way that we would do science. And that started a sort of whole new phase in my career, effectively, looking not only at doing the experiments, but how could we do the experiments better? How could we make that environment in the lab better, be more useful, use information we had from previous experiments more usefully, understand what people had done before, and just basically change the way we did things for the better. That's uh, where that general, what would now be called a digital research infrastructure. Nobody, I think, had thought of that name at that point. And we started making our laboratories more user-friendly. We had things like building some of the first electronic laboratory notebooks for sort of physical sciences, trying to work out what did you really want to do? And of course, what we discovered is it's telling a story and you're recording a story. And it's a story about what I did in the lab and what the students did in the lab and how they exchanged those stories. And ever since then, it's been, how can we tell better stories, whether we're telling stories to ourselves, whether we're telling them to our fellow research groups, or out to the world um, in a publication or an outreach activity. We're all looking at how can we do that better? How can we use our time better? How can we spend more time thinking about what we're doing? How can we show all our hard work in the laboratories is really effective and get new ideas coming out? And that's what gets me up in the morning. It's actually trying new things. So it's great when other people use your ideas as well. 
that's where I come from. And so I describe myself these days sometimes, not officially, but unofficially, as a physical and digital chemist. So it's not just about doing experiments. I have to say I do do less of those these days. I typically spend less time in the lab, much less time in the lab, but uh, much more time doing the sort of calculations and sporting. But it's not just doing calculations. It is that using the digital in the much wider sense to support what we do. Okay, you've already touched on the digital research infrastructure and started to explain a little bit about what it is and how it supports research. Could you explain a little bit more about what your understanding of, of that term is and maybe a few more examples? Certainly. I think most people would understand what we mean by research infrastructure. It's not your specific experiment. It's the environment in which you are that enables you to do that. And that can be anything from the physical location that you're in to the support that you get in terms of workshops, electronic workshops, machine shops, stuff you can buy, all the uh, now increasing the network systems that are present. But it also extends to things like, well, if I've got a room there, it's being controlled in its temperature. There's a building management system. Can I access details about that to know what conditions my experiment is under? The answer is usually no. They won't let you anywhere near the building management system. So what do you do? You build into your laboratory a way of measuring the temperature, the humidity, the air flows, and things like that. And of course, if you're running the sorts of laser experiments that we do nowadays in building our X-ray microscope, these are very sensitive lasers. We have to control the temperature very precisely, so we're in a highly regulated air conditioning environment. So there is part of the infrastructure. And at the same time as we're running those probably analog control loops, we are monitoring all these things. So we start to realize we're in a much more digital age. Almost all the equipment is controlled by a computer, whether that's an embedded chip or an actual laptop connected up there. And we can get information out of what's going on much more readily recorded. There's a flow of information about the environment you're in, about the experiments you're running, about the calculations that you do. So the data that comes out of those experiments typically then goes into some sort of program for analysis. And then either your colleagues will be running in parallel. As I've said, a lot of calculations about that. So there's a flow of this data around. And typically now that is all born digital and kept digital. Although there is always the tendency, chemists love sketching things on the back of bits of paper. So there is always a problem that bits of paper creep up there and you have to tie the physical to digital. So even if you don't have the bits of paper, there are still samples. In chemistry, we work on things a lot of the time. And those things of some form or other, they may be a molecule, a solution, a material, a device. You have to connect that physical object to the digital structure. So we need a way of connecting the physical and digital worlds, keeping track of the digital world. But the digital does open up this possibility of connecting the information much more readily. But you've got to have the ability to capture all your thoughts and stuff. You've got to have the network connections, the wireless connections. You've got to have the data flowing off the equipment, the data that you take your sample to be analyzed down with a mass spectrometer or something like that. That's more data. You've got to then be able to connect it up. So these days, the problem may not be so much generating the data in the digital form, but connecting it up. Now, why is that such a problem? Stuff has to flow together, but to flow together, you've got to know what it is, which means it's got to have the appropriate labels on it, which means you need the appropriate standards. With the dreaded word that librarians always bring in, the metadata word, if you don't know whose it is, then how do you connect it up? And it's not just going to know it's my sample. I need to know which sample it is and which experiment I ran and which do I want to link it to. And can I link that to the discussion that I had with my students about it? 
So we actually run a collaborative set of experiments that we've been running for nearly 20 years now between physics, chemistry, and biology. And we have typically weekly meetings and we have a kind of electronic blogging system that students will, and we all put, when it's working well, put in more material day by day or, you know, that certainly for that week. If you want your stuff discussed in the meeting, we discuss it in the meeting. And that's great. So we're bringing in the data, the examples, the analysis, the paper, the literature. We bring that together as a story. We don't record the meetings, though. So we don't actually manage to tie back the discussion unless somebody remembers to type it up. But of course, nobody ever remembers to type up parts of the meeting. So even though we've been doing this for some time and we're great believers in telling the story and great believers in looking back at previous people's stories to find out how did they fix that when they did something. So the digital has not changed what we desired to do, but it's enabled us to do it much more effectively. But I think my example with the meetings, it shows you, you know, this was set up pre sort of Zoom times, if you like, and now maybe we should be thinking of this. We're still not there yet. The infrastructure is beginning to be there, but the standards are not there. We have different standards for different things, so it's very hard to connect everything up. So the digital infrastructure is not just about the building, the wires, the computer, the networking, but about the standards needed to enable you to communicate the information effectively and particularly integrate it. And it's that integration phase, which I think is probably the most powerful outcome of this digital arena. When you do get all the standards in place and you do get the networking in place and you can bring it all together and match things up, that's when you start to get real insight. So does that give you a feeling for what I mean by digital research infrastructure? I think so. I'm working on a couple of European Open Science Cloud projects that's very much looking at the standard side and how you can integrate different data types. So it's, um, yeah, it's certainly a challenge. I think you've covered my next question in the sense that what you described sounds very comprehensive, that environment. Are there any elements that are being excluded, any sort of parts of the process of being a scientist or doing science that are actually excluded from this infrastructure? I'm not sure I would say they're any of the excluded, but there are some things that are done better than others. We still have a problem in the human-computer interaction. Things are not always being driven by what people would like to do. They're driven by how easy it is for the computer to receive the information, and that's not ideal. Partly because actually it means the computer doesn't get the information that you really need to be in there if it's not easy to put in. So people will hit return when there's and leave a blank on things. And there's too much time where we repetitively put in information. I think everybody can resonate with that with whatever discipline they're in and everyday life. I've told you that already type of thing. And indeed, we are looking, one of our little projects is about talk to lab. So we can actually talk in the lab and it's like an Alexa-like thing, for example. But Alexa keeps trying to buy things for you. So that's a slight problem with it. But these things are really neat because sometimes you've got your hands full. So you want to be able to talk to things. So there are a number of, I know, startup companies that are actually making it much easier to talk to instruments. We had some history of this in Southampton in our chemistry department because we had a blind student once a few years ago working in our practical labs. So we had talking thermometers and things like that. This is all possible. It's just not being done very often. And uh, indeed, as we extend maybe perhaps an area that isn't so well covered, we have all these systems work well if you can see and you can hear and you can type. Actually, it's not so good if you're missing on any one of those. Sign language for chemistry is one of those areas that I've seen being developed and chemical informatics. We have all sorts of signs and things, but we don't necessarily make them very easy to sign. And I think there's some discussions there going on. So I think that accessibility side, which always involves making it easier for everybody, is what you discover. As soon as you make it easier for some people who have some particular issues, you discover, well, actually, most of us had some of those in some degree. 
all of this really works nicely when you've got the proper standards in place so that you really have a good description of whatever it is that you're trying to get in and out. So it's human and computer readable. It's also transformable. And the transformable means it can be transformed for different ways of viewing that data, where view in quotes is whatever way you want to look at it or hear it or something. But it also enables that integration phase with other disciplines. That's one of the issues. We're not all moving forward. So in the life sciences, there's been huge investment in standardization, the protein data bank, lots and lots of work, gene ontologies, all sorts of stuff. And actually, they've driven some of the chemistry, for example, because, of course, they need the chemistry. But the chemists look at that and think that's not quite what we all mean by that in chemistry. Of course, it depends what breed of chemist you've got, because different chemists look at the same thing and differently, which is, in fact, the same chemist looks at the same thing differently half the time. That's one of the things about chemistry. We're very good at holding inconsistent models and making them useful. That's a real challenge for computers. They like consistency. So you really have to articulate these things very well. And the driver there that we're working on, we have some new projects running at the moment, funded under the Digital Research Infrastructure Initiative on physical sciences data infrastructure. Southampton and SDFC Computing Division working on this to really try and articulate how you describe physical sciences. And obviously, I'm interested in the chemistry in particular, but more generally, but in a way that will be compatible with many other areas so that the big global challenges we have, you know, sustainability, environmental issues, food, whatever, need an integrated approach. But an integrated approach means that you've got to be able to work across disciplines, which means you've got to exchange data across disciplines. So this really builds up to really articulating well to a specialist who's working hard on it, but not in your domain. It then has the consequence of being able to explain it better to the generalist as well. But a lot of the time, we really assume an awful lot when we communicate. And when you do this via the digital domain and make this available to other people, you start to discover you haven't done such a good job in explaining things. Uh, that even goes to um, issue around units. And we've just really, a group which is a, a co-data group has just published a call to action in Nature about this is something we better get right. Otherwise, we waste so much time and effort collecting data. And if you can't even get the right units on it that are clear and have to be clear digitally now, because that's how people are probably going to find your data, it's almost a waste. A best a waste and at worst dangerous when it gets misinterpreted. Right from the bottom of this standards area, there's a huge amount of work to be done. And it's become apparent because we made such fantastic improvements in our ability to exchange stuff digitally. You can do things you just could not do even 10 years ago, but it does show up some of the issues, particularly around standards and maybe also around our ability to actually move large amounts of data around all the time. You discover things like um, added security levels to make sure you can't be hacked suddenly mean that somebody has to put a, you know, a second identification code in via a phone when you're moving terabytes of data between a facility and a computer somewhere. And that person is not there, right? Because this is supposed to be an automated process. But you, you, know, you can understand why we've done it, and suddenly it has other consequences. So it's building up this whole system. It's so complicated. That's where we run into to problems. We have a very complicated system, and we really have to work at trying not to simplify it, but to really understand what we're trying to do and make it clearer and simpler to do. So moving on, how might digital research infrastructure enhance the creation, dissemination and analysis of scientific data? And in, in fact, what do we actually mean by data? So one person's data is another person's experiment or the literature and so on. I mean, here I'm really talking about we undertake some, say, an experiment or some calculation and it produces some sort of results. And in, in my words here, the data is that whole thing. It's a description of what you did and it's a description of what came out, followed then by, well, what does this actually mean? 
And that's the point where you want to, you think about it yourself, but you then usually need to pull in information from other areas, from take if it's a chemistry experiment, you'll need other bits of chemistry, you need some physics, but typically you're doing this because it's going to have a consequence somewhere, perhaps in the life sciences, perhaps in engineering. So you're then going to pass those details on. You've made a new material because you've got some information about a new molecule. You've made this material. You're now testing it. The testing gives you some results which tell you, I don't know, conductivity or something. That enables you to then work through and say, well, I can build a better one. But better then is in the sense against what is it ultimately going to be used for. So the digital infrastructure when working helps everybody at their little stage because they can collect up a lot more information about what they need. It's to hand, it's there, it's clearer. They know particularly information about the uncertainties about each piece of information. And then they can pass that on and be part of the conversation about, for example, how would this work in a device? And in a sense, we're all becoming part of what is being called these digital twins. So you can, as well as doing the actual work, you can build the models at the same time. But what the digital infrastructure, when working well, it gives you a much wider remit to work over because no one person can know all the information they might need. That's why we have experts. You know, we have the engineers who build the devices. We have the materials chemists who make the materials, the quantum chemists who will predict the properties of the molecule. We all need to work together, but you need that glue. And that's where I see the digital research infrastructure really making a difference. And it's great. You know, when you're in the middle of a meeting, you think, wouldn't it be nice to know this? Oh, so, well, you do know this. It is available. I can get those numbers up. We did that experiment. I can pull them up right now in the middle of a meeting. Or I can compare these numbers with somebody else's numbers. And that's often one of the most valuable things to do. And then the numbers are different. Why are they different? Well, that's where you need the context. And that's the bit that is often not there, not in enough detail, even in papers, and not coded in enough detail to really be able to make automatic comparisons about. So my experiment's a bit different from yours. Is this important? Is it not important? Where's the differences? Those things are really, really the next generation of the sort of automated intelligence. So there obviously are a lot of opportunities to sort of intelligently connect these different parts of the digital research infrastructure, but how easy is it to actually do that? Not easy, usually. It's one of these things. So if you happen to have equipment and you buy software that has the open standards, then somebody has probably written something or can write something that sandwiches the two together. It is getting easier than it was. I mean, at least these days, you can usually plug in your USB connector and your Ethernet. Of course, you may need about five different adapters to go between the different things, but you can do it. And then usually once you've done that, with a bit of fiddling around, you can make the two things talk to each other. That is an improvement over where we were. Whether they can interpret the data that comes down the line and show it in the right place, again, it's better than it was, but you may need to do a little bit of manipulation. But if everything is fully explained, doesn't mean it will automatically pipe together because somebody's designation, what they thought was important, is not necessarily the same as what you think is important. So you may need to map these over. I think other areas that are moving on, which I think will both help and potentially add to the complexity, I've given the impression of we're working in the lab, we've got data flowing around down the wires, we're communicating that way. Well, it doesn't have to be like that in the sense I've already talked about talking to things. Clearly, the uh, virtual reality and I guess augmented reality, I think, is going to be more important to begin with. That gives a whole new dimension to how you can have virtual presence. During the pandemic, we actually used this to help when we weren't allowed too many people in a lab. So actually, you know, if one person's in the lab and supervisor comes in and you have suddenly have to have all protection on because you've got too many people with close space, that really pushes up front. Can we do this virtually? 
then, of course, it has the advantage that the person, the expert, you can call them in from anywhere. They don't have to be physically present. And then it becomes a very interesting operation working out how you know, what are you both looking at? Are you both looking at the same things? And there are all sorts of neat ways of doing that. And that's why I say the augmented reality is quite good. And we have actually made some experiments where, you know, you could look at our vacuum chambers and it will tell you what the pressure is. It was an interesting game. We don't currently use this, but I think more and more it's going to be possible to do that. And it will overlay measurements about a system on the system rather than the gauge being over one side of the telling you, you know, you're on one side of the room, it gives you the answer what's going on the other side of the room. That's actually a lot more useful. You can look at it. And in many experiments that we do, you're wearing goggles or glasses. So it's not going to be an extra effort to have something in there once they get lightweight enough to overlay some head-up displays type sort of thing. And I think we're going, as that sort of technology becomes consumerized and the price falls, we're going to see a lot more useful things there where you'll get a lot of information, safety information, guidance stuff coming in to help you again to do that work. That will change some of the environments. Other stuff is automation will allow you to set things up and get them running. So you've got more time to think about what it is you should be doing, should have done, and what you did do and why you did it. And yeah, so I think those are things that are going to happen to move on. We see that you're the PI for the AI for Scientific Discovery Network and take the lead for governance and strategy. What governance needs and opportunities are there for development of intelligent or connected e-science infrastructure? Some of the governance comes down to things like we need some standards. And so that's very useful to have that sort of thing. And I've mentioned that enough times, I think. But, you know, it's not easy to create standards. You need to invest a lot of time and effort and there's got to be sufficient reward for it. But that's where you do need to start, say, actually some governance. We also have that coming through in the sense of the general open science ideas and that pushing on that side. But equally well, there are ethical issues to work on. You know, we are working with people and machines and equipment, and now we have all the interesting issues that come up as you now have much more intelligent things. There's a sort of issues around monitoring and stuff going on, unexpected outcomes of doing things automatically. Some things become easier. Some things that you shouldn't be doing become easier to do. That issue with dual use of experiments, it's very easy to take a piece of software that is designed to predict how to make a better drug, and um, it can make better other things that you shouldn't perhaps be wanting to make. Equally well, it can be used to detect things that are going on when they shouldn't. That can be used positively to give you warnings. You know, this is dangerous. This is about to be a problem. Don't do it. Think about what you're doing, or have you got the right protections in there? A lot of these things have an upside and a downside. And I think in life sciences and certainly in the humanities areas, as AI creeps into more and more stuff and into commerce, we're very much aware of some of the ethical issues. I don't think they're being considered enough. And the issues around explainable models so that, you know, if you get turned down for your insurance, why? You know, it was an automated system. You know you have a duty to explain. I think when I put that, people in the scientific domain start to realize the same problems arise in the application of all of these infrastructures, especially as they become more and more intelligent and start to take actions on their own. Great, you know, something has gone wrong. Instead of just firing a warning light at you, we can fire, I think this is because, and you know, this is where you should go and check first. But that probably, you know, means there's potential monitoring going on everywhere. That has consequences as an imposition on people. If the machine learning model comes up with an answer driven through this whole digital research infrastructure, How do you know the validity of that answer? Now, if you're in like with the last few years, we have been trying rapidly to find solutions to a pandemic. What you want is something next to try. You can worry about the luxury of understanding why it's effective a little bit later. 
but it's still important. But when you're doing the normal science, it's really important to know why. Just getting the answer is not good enough. You need to know why. And so explainable models, just as everywhere else in AI world, are really important. If you've got the whole infrastructure there, so you know the provenance of your data, so you know what it depends on, actually, it's a lot easier to understand what's gone in and what's coming out. It's easier to understand other people's work. It's easier to reuse it. And if problems arise, check it and see what's going on and have the conversation about it. Again, nothing in principle different to the process that we would normally have undertaken, but we can just do it faster and more effectively. But it does have an impact on exposing our work to other people. And that, again, can make some people uncomfortable about it. You need to be sure about it. You need to be confident that you're allowed to make mistakes. And actually, it's great if somebody finds those mistakes, but I would not ever suggest that that is easy on oneself to do that. But I think that's one of our duties to explain it. And uh, we certainly found that it, students will write things in their paper notebook, but not show them to their supervisor until too late. You know, they'll only tell things to their supervisor sometimes when they've already fixed the problem. Actually, it's when they had the problem that they need to work. We've discovered it can be even more difficult to do that, to get them to type that in, because somehow typing it in makes it more formal. And so that's why we go back to the storytelling idea. I want to know how they felt when they came into the lab and it was annoyed because it was broken for the 10th week running. You need those stories because that's what research life is like. And we need to em empathize with that. And we've been through it ourselves. They don't believe that, the students sometimes. But it does somehow give a different gloss on it when it's all become on a computer system and recorded and whatever. And you think, oh, you know, is it like my Facebook entry that's going to haunt me for years? Is my research entry going to haunt me? Well, maybe it would, but it's better that we get it right. But these things have serious ethical and moral implications. So as we change that infrastructure, we do need to think about professional practice, about professional responsibilities, about ensuring that all players are playing level playing field on this. And that's where I think the governance issues are really important. We've talked about the future several times already, but where do we go from here? You know, in 10 years' time, who might need help in building the digital infrastructure? And does GIST have a role here at all? So GIST definitely has a role because one of the things, so I've been involved with GIST for many years as it's migrated to different forms. There is a very definite tendency that uh, in our mentoring for people who are going to try to uh, go into enterprise, we try and mentor people to what is it that people actually want and what works, not build it and they will come. And in the tech world, there's a lot of interesting build it and they will come. And it's very exciting, but it doesn't necessarily make it sit for purpose in the research or indeed, absolutely, perhaps even more importantly in the long run, the education environment. There's a huge amount of transformation possibilities for the research and higher education teaching and school teaching. And the technology is the push here. It's the opportunity. The digital infrastructure, as we've talked about, has huge opportunities here. But will it deliver useful things? And how do you know if it's delivering the useful stuff? And that's one of the things I think JISC has always been very good at, is actually setting up projects to say, right, so this is the need. We want to try and address this education need, this type of research need, this sort of environment in the laboratory. What are the possibilities? Let's do the piece of work to find out what we could do, and then do some of these things and actually see what it did, and record what it did, and tell the rest of us what actually works, or importantly, what doesn't work, or how to make something that works. Otherwise, we all sit there thinking, it'd be a nice idea to try this. And then some of us might try it, not realizing somebody's tried it already. Or we try it, but we don't necessarily have the right people to evaluate it. You know, if I'm a chemist, I can evaluate the outcome in terms of chemistry. But it's great if somebody else who is involved in these projects understands the more educational side and understands the right questions. Well, I'm very lucky in our department. We have education specialists in chemistry. 
But you can see how that needing that, that's the sort of structure that I was perceived that GIST provides. Identifying some of these problems, working across the whole sector so that we can then deliver. We do have problems in delivering enough information, enough ways of doing things across the sector. We do things perhaps a little individually too often, and maybe we could be a bit more efficient and use best practice. And I absolutely see GISC promoting those sorts of activities. I know it's transformed a few times, but I still see it doing that. The other aspect that I know many of you in GISC are really good at doing is finding the people to talk to and getting them together to have the conversation about what it is that we could be doing. And that's just as important in starting that process. But then the great thing is, it's not just a conversation, you follow it up. We have the conversation and then forget it. You follow it up and say, right, we need to do something about this and set something in motion to, to do that. And that's what I think is a very exciting future for us all working with. I'll give a little plug for our digital research community at that point then, if anybody does want to get involved in some of the conversations that we're having. It's been a pleasure, Jeremy, to talk to you. One final question for me, really, is I've been fascinated by your reference to stories and storytelling throughout our conversation. When did you discover the value of, of stories and have you got any examples of times when it's really been invaluable to take that approach? I think it's always valuable. So, I mean, of course, the most valuable stories were the ones I invented to tell my kids at bedtime, when I then tried to convince them that they're clearly going to be a scientist by weaving in as much scientists. I absolutely remember sitting in the library at school, reading about some particular piece of chemistry, actually, and suddenly realizing why my father's story had in it a particular name for a girl. And when you put the name together, it came up with a piece of chemistry. And I thought, ah, <laughs> only many years later did I realize this. But that idea of weaving stories, but actually it's explaining to people that they're telling a story and it's got to be comprehensible and interesting to the audience and you're just the audience. I think that weaves everything that I do. I tell myself the stories in that sense. That's what I'm building because you know, it's well known that the paper that you write does not reflect the order of things you actually did them in. It reflects the order that the story is going to convey it best. But it goes to the teaching, it goes to outreach activities, it goes to talking to colleagues. It's all about having an interesting story to tell. And interesting is interesting for all sorts of reasons. It then led me to get a bit, actually, we had a course um, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, so we couldn't do it in person. John Hansar Gallery had arranged for Poetry for Scientists. And I actually took part in that. So I even got to write some poems about our science as well. And that was a very interesting exercise in distilling down what you were trying to say. And, and certainly I now view the, in our artificial intelligence, well, machine learning models, which you put a lot of data in and it compresses it down to the key bits in the middle. And that's what is the learning. And so I figured that we put in a story and it came out with a poem. And uh, then it translates the poem back into other stories. So I'm trying that analogy on my humanities colleagues to try to explain what our machine learning models are doing. So I think I've probably always been telling stories. Well, thank you for telling part of your story to us today. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. Thank you very much. It's been very interesting. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>